0: The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by quality, not by circumstance. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up guys? This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And today, we are going to talk about the masses and the remnant. How it can seem that everybody is ignorant, that no one cares about, or maybe they are just blind to the real and most important problems we face today, and instead seem viciously attached to what color we are going to paint the Titanic. How the truth is ridiculed and laughed at, How sometimes even those that need the message the most are the most resistant to it. But why, through the seeming lack of progress, the decline into total absurdity our world is racing to complete, it is more important than ever, it is our obligation, in fact, to keep speaking what we know as the plain truth. That is Isaiah's job. We are diving into a seriously awesome piece today uh, by Albert J. Nock. This is posted. It just has popped back up. A bunch of people were talking about it and uh, I got sent the link a number of times. Uh, This one is, there's a more complete version on Mises.org and there's also a post on Fee. But we are reading this one today and we will likely follow it up with an article possibly tomorrow uh, written by Alex Svetsky that is essentially... Uh, ...is Svetsky's take on this piece, really. Um, But it is seriously a great one. Before we dive in, let's thank our three amazing sponsors who make this show happen. First, we have got the Fold Card and Fold app. The way to get sats back on everything in your life. It is a debit card with sats back rewards on literally every purchase... ...and also gift cards to major retailers that even have bigger rewards... Uh, I am. I have literally in the last year. I've used this thing. I've gotten uh, oh just shy of four million Sats back. That is around eighteen hundred dollars right now. And you can get yours with twenty percent off the annual fee, mind you, at guyswan.com/fold. Then after getting those rewards, where does one keep them safe? That's a BitBox two hardware wallet for you. It is secure, open source, easy to use, cold storage for your Sats. Savings and your fold rewards, and every other SAT that you get. Uh, discount code GUY, uh, which is my name, uh, gets you 5% off the Bitbox as well as anything else you get at the Shift Crypto store. And lastly, the automatic savings plan with Swan Bitcoin. That is how I stack all the time, every week, no matter what I am doing, no matter where I am, I am buying Bitcoin and sending it to my Bitbox. Swan Bitcoin does that automatically for me and you can check out all of our sponsors at guyswan.com right at the top of the page. And with that, let's get into today's incredible read and it's titled Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Knock. This essay first appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1936. One evening last autumn, I sat long hours with a European acquaintance while he expounded a political-economic doctrine which seemed sound as a nut and which I could find no defect. At the end he said with great earnestness, I have a mission to the masses. I feel that I am called to get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. What do you think?' An embarrassing question in any case, and doubly so under the circumstances, because my acquaintance is a very learned man, one of the three or four really first-class minds that Europe produced in his generation. and Naturally, I, as one of the unlearned, was inclined to regard his lightest word with reverence amounting to all. Still, I reflected. Even the greatest mind cannot possibly know everything— and I was pretty sure he had not had my opportunities for observing the masses of mankind, and that therefore I probably knew them better than he did. So I mustered the courage to say that he had no such mission, and would do well to get the idea out of his head at once. He would find that the masses would not care two pins for his doctrine, and still less for himself, since in such circumstances the popular favorite is generally some Barabbas. I even went so far as to say, he is a Jew, that his idea seemed to show that he was not very well up on his own native literature. He smiled at my jest and asked what I meant by it, and I referred him to the story of the prophet Isaiah. It occurred to me then that this story is much worth recalling just now, when so many wise men and soothsayers appear to be burdened with a message to the masses. Dr. Townsend has a message, Father Coughlin has one, Mr. Upton Sinclair, Mr. Lippman, Mr. Chase and the Planned Economy Brethren, Mr. Tugwell and the New Dealers, Mr. Smith and Liberty Leaguers. The list is endless. I cannot remember a time when so many energimans were so variously proclaiming the word to the multitude and telling them what they must do to be saved. This being so, it occurred to me, as I say, that the story of Isaiah might have something in it to steady and compose the human spirit until this tyranny of windiness is overpassed. I shall paraphrase the story in our common speech, since it has to be pieced out from various sources, and in as much as respectable scholars have thought fit to put out a whole new version of the Bible in the American vernacular. I shall take shelter behind them, if need be, against the charge of dealing irreverently with the sacred scriptures. The prophet's career began at the end of King Uzziah's reign, say about 740 BC. This reign was uncommonly long, almost half a century, and apparently prosperous. It was one of those prosperous reigns, however, like the reign of Marcus Aurelius at Rome, or the administration of Eubulus at Athens, or of Mr. Coolidge at Washington, where at the end the prosperity suddenly peters out, and things go by the board with a resounding crash. In the year of Uzziah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. "'Tell them what a worthless lot they are,' he said." Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving it to them. I suppose perhaps I ought to tell you, he added, that it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen." They will all keep in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction, and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. Isaiah had been very willing to take on the job. In fact, he had asked for it. But the prospect put a new face on the situation. It raised the obvious question. Why? If all that were so, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, was there any sense in starting it? Ah, the Lord said, "You do not get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate. Each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged, braced up, because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile." Your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant, so be off now and set about it. Apparently then, if the Lord's word is good for anything, I do not offer any opinion about that, the only element in Judean society that was particularly worth bothering about was the remnant. Isaiah seems finally to have got it through his head that this was the case that nothing was to be expected from the masses, but that if anything substantial were ever to be done in Judea, the remnant would have to do it. This is a very striking and suggestive idea, but before going on to explore it, we need to be quite clear about our terms. What do we mean by the masses and what by the remnant? As the word masses is commonly used, It suggests agglomerations of poor and underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians, and it means nothing like that. It means simply the majority. The mass man is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are called collectively the masses. The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by quality, not by circumstance. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able at least measurably to cleave to them. The Masses are those who are unable to do either. The picture which Isaiah presents of the Judean Masses is most unfavorable. In his view, the Mass man, be he high or be he lowly, rich or poor, prince or pauper, gets off very badly. He appears as not only weak-minded and weak-willed, but as by consequence, navish, arrogant, grasping, dissipated, unprincipled, unscrupulous, The mass woman also gets off badly as sharing all the mass man's untoward qualities and contributing a few of her own in the way of vanity and laziness, extravagance and foible. The list of luxury products that she patronized is interesting. It calls to mind the woman's page of a Sunday newspaper in 1928, or the display set forth in one of our professedly smart periodicals. In another place, Isaiah even recalls the affectations that we used to know by the name Flapper gait, and the debutante slouch. It may be fair to discount Isaiah's vivacity a little for prophetic fervor. After all, since his real job was not to convert the masses, but to brace and reassure the remnant, he probably felt that he might lay it on indiscriminately and as thick as he liked. In fact, that he was expected to do so. But even so, the Judean mass man must have been a most objectionable individual and the mass woman utterly odious. If the modern spirit, whatever that may be, is disinclined towards taking the Lord's word at its face value, as I hear is the case, we may observe that Isaiah's testimony to the character of the masses has strong collateral support from respectable Gentile authority. Plato lived into the administration of Eubulus, when Athens was at the peak of its jazz-and-paper era, and he speaks of the Athenian masses with all Isaiah's fervency, even comparing them to a herd of ravenous wild beasts. Curiously, too, he applies Isaiah's own word, remnant, to the worthier portion of Athenian society. There is but a very small remnant he says, of those who possess a saving force of intellect and force of character, too small, preciously as to Judea, to be of any avail against the ignorant and vicious preponderance of the masses. But Isaiah was a preacher and Plato a philosopher, and we tend to regard preachers and philosophers rather as passive observers of the drama of life than as active participants. Hence, in a matter of this kind, their judgment might be suspected of being a little uncompromising, a little acrid, or, as the French say, saugrenieux. We may therefore bring forward another witness who was preeminently a man of affairs, and whose judgment cannot lie under this suspicion. Marcus Aurelius was ruler of the greatest of empires, and in that capacity he not only had the Roman mass man under his observation, but he had him on his hands twenty-four hours a day for eighteen years. What he did not know about him was not worth knowing, and what he thought of him is abundantly attested to on almost every page of the little book of jottings which he scribbled off-hand from day to day, and which he meant for no eye but his own ever to see. This view of the masses is the one that we find prevailing at large among the ancient authorities whose writings have come down to us. In the eighteenth century, however, certain European philosophers spread the notion that the mass man, in his natural state, is not at all the kind of person that earlier authorities made him out to be, but on the contrary, that he is a worthy object of interest. His untowardness is the effect of environment, an effect of which society is somehow responsible. If only his environment permitted him to live according to his lights, he would undoubtedly show himself to be "quite a fellow," and the best way to secure a more favorable environment for him would be to let him arrange it for himself. The French Revolution acted powerfully as a springboard for this idea, projecting its influence in all directions throughout Europe. On this side of the ocean a whole new continent stood ready for a large-scale experiment with this theory. It afforded every conceivable resource whereby the masses might develop a civilization made in their own likeness and after their own image. There was no force of tradition to disturb them in their preponderance or to check them in a thoroughgoing disparagement of the remnant. Immense natural wealth Unquestioned predominance, virtual isolation, freedom from external interference and the fear of it, and finally a century and a half of time. Such are the advantages which the mass man has had in bringing forth a civilization which should set the earlier preachers and philosophers at naught in their belief that nothing substantial can be expected from the masses, but only from the remnant. His success is unimpressive. On the evidence so far presented, one must say, I think, that the mass man's conception of what life has to offer and his choice of what to ask from life seem now to be pretty well what they were in the times of Isaiah and Plato, and so too seem the catastrophic social conflicts and convulsions in which his views of life and his demands on life involve him. I do not wish to dwell on this, however, but merely to observe that the monstrously inflated importance of the masses has apparently put all thought of a possible mission to the remnant out of the modern prophet's head. This is obviously quite as it should be, provided that the earlier preachers and philosophers were actually wrong, and that all final hope of the human race is actually centered in the masses. If, on the other hand, it should turn out that the Lord and Isaiah and Plato and Marcus Aurelius were right in their estimate of the relative social value of the masses and the remnant, the case is somewhat different. Moreover, since with everything in their favor, the masses have so far given such an extremely discouraging account of themselves it would seem that the question at issue between these two bodies of opinion might most profitably be reopened. But without following up this suggestion, I wish only, as I said, to remark the fact that as things now stand, Isaiah's job seems rather to go begging. Everyone with a message nowadays is, like my venerable European friend, eager to take it to the masses. His first, last, and only thought is of mass acceptance and mass approval. His great care is to put his doctrine in such a shape as will capture the masses' attention and interest. This attitude towards the masses is so exclusive, so devout, that one is reminded of the troglodytic monster described by Plato and the assiduous crowd at the entrance to its cave. Trying obsequiously to placate it and win its favor, trying to interpret its inarticulate noises, trying to find out what it wants, and eagerly offering all sorts of things that they think might strike its fancy. The main trouble with all this is its reaction upon the mission itself. It necessitates an opportunist sophistication of one's doctrine, which profoundly alters its character and reduces it to a mere placebo. If, say, you are a preacher, you wish to attract as large a congregation as you can, which means an appeal to the masses, and this in turn means adapting the terms of your message to the order of intellect and character that the masses exhibit. If you are an educator, say, with a college on your hands, you wish to get as many students as possible, and you whittle down your requirements accordingly. If a writer, you aim at getting many readers, if a publisher, many purchasers, if a philosopher, many disciples, if a reformer, many converts, if a musician, many auditors, and so on. But as we see on all sides, in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities in every instance, that its effect on the masses is merely to harden them in their sins. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this adulteration and of the desires that prompt it, turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message. Isaiah, on the other hand, worked under no such disabilities. He preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly, Anyone who liked might listen, anyone who liked might pass by. He knew that the remnant would listen, and knowing also that nothing was to be expected of the masses under any circumstances, he made no specific appeal to them, did not accommodate his message to their measure in any way, and did not care two straws whether they heeded it or not. As a modern publisher might put it, he was not worrying about circulation or about advertising. Hence, with all such obsessions quite out of the way, he was in a position to do his level best, without fear or favor, and answerable only to his August boss. If a prophet were not too particular about making money out of his mission, or getting a dubious sort of notoriety out of it, the foregoing considerations would lead one to say that serving the remnant looks like a good job. An assignment that you can really put your back into and do your best without thinking about results is a real job, whereas serving the masses is at best only half a job, considering the inexorable conditions that the masses impose upon their servants. They ask you to give them what they want. They insist upon it and will take nothing else. And following their whims, their irrational changes of fancy, their hot and cold fits, is a tedious business to say nothing of the fact that what they want at any time makes very little call on one's resources of prophecy. The remnant, on the other hand, want only the best you have, whatever that may be. Give them that and they are satisfied. You have nothing more to worry about. The prophet of the American masses must aim consciously at the lowest common denominator of intellect, taste, and character among a 120 million people. And this is a distressing task. The prophet of the remnant, on the contrary, is in the inviolable position of Papa Hayden in the household of Prince Esterhazy. All Hayden had to do was keep forking out the best music he knew how to produce, knowing it would be understood and appreciated by those for whom he produced it, and caring not a button what anyone else thought of it. And that makes a good job. In a sense, nevertheless, as I have said, it is not a rewarding job. If you can touch the fancy of the masses, and have the sagacity to keep always one jump ahead of their vagaries and vacillations, you can get good returns in money from serving the masses, and good returns also in a mouth-to-ear type of notoriety. Digito monstrari et disier We all know innumerable politicians, journalists, dramatists, novelists, and the like, who have done extremely well by themselves in these ways, Taking care of the remnant, on the contrary, holds little promise of any such rewards. A prophet of the remnant will not grow purse-proud on the financial returns from his work, nor is it likely that he will get any great renown out of it. Isaiah's case was exceptional to this second rule, and there are others, but not many. It may be thought, then, that while taking care of the remnant is no doubt a good job, It is not an especially interesting job because it is, as a rule, so poorly paid. I have my doubts about this. There are other compensations to be got out of a job besides money and notoriety, and some of them seem substantial enough to be attractive. Many jobs which do not pay well are yet profoundly interesting, as, for instance, the job of research student in the sciences is said to be. And the job of looking after the remnant seems to me, as I have surveyed it for many years from my seat in the grand stand, to be as interesting as any that can be found in the world. What chiefly makes it so, I think, is that in any given society the remnant are always so largely an unknown quantity. You do not know, and will never know, more than two things about them. You can be sure of those dead sure as our phrase is but you will never be able to make even a respectable guess at anything else. You do not know and will never know who the remnant are nor what they are doing or will do. Two things you do know and no more. First, that they exist. Second, that they will find you. Except for these two certainties Working for the remnant means working in impenetrable darkness, and this, I should say, is just the condition calculated most effectively to pique the interest of any prophet who is properly gifted with the imagination, insight, and intellectual curiosity necessary to a successful pursuit of his trade. The Fascination and the Despair of the Historian As he looks back upon Isaiah's jury, upon Plato's Athens, or upon Rome of the Antonines, is the hope of discovering and laying bare the, quote, "...substratum of right thinking and well-doing," which he knows must have existed somewhere in those societies, because no kind of collective life can possibly go on without it. He finds tantalizing intimations of it here and there in many places, as in the Greek anthology, in the scrapbook of Aulus Gellius, in the poems of Osonius, and in the brief and touching tribute Bene Merenti, bestowed upon the unknown occupants of Roman tombs. But these are vague and fragmentary. They lead him nowhere in his search for some kind of measure on this substratum, but merely testify to what he already knew a priori that the substratum did somewhere exist. Where it was, how substantial it was, what its power of self-assertion and resistance was, of all this, they tell him nothing. Similarly, when the historian of 2,000 years hence, or 200 years, looks over the available testimony to the quality of our civilization and tries to get any kind of clear Competent evidence concerning the substratum of right thinking and well doing which he knows must have been here, he will have a devil of a time finding it. When he has assembled all he can and has made even a minimum allowance for speciousness, vagueness, and confusion of motive, he will sadly acknowledge that his net result is simply nothing. A remnant were here, building a substratum like coral insects. So much he knows, but he will find nothing to put him on the track of who and where and how many they were and what their work was like. Concerning all this, too, the prophet of the present knows precisely as much and as little as the historian of the future, and that, I repeat, is what makes his job seem to me so profoundly interesting. One of the most suggestive episodes recounted in the Bible is that of a prophet's attempt, the only attempt of the kind on the record, I believe, to count up the remnant. Elijah had fled from persecution into the desert, where the Lord presently overhauled him and asked what he was doing so far away from his job. He said that he was running away, not because he was a coward, but because all the remnant had been killed off except himself. He had got away only by the skin of his teeth, and he being now all the remnant there was, if he were killed, the true faith would go flat. The Lord replied that he need not worry about that, for even without him the true faith could probably manage to squeeze along somehow if it had to. And as for your figures on the remnant, he said, I don't mind telling you that there are seven thousand of them back there in Israel whom it seems you have not heard of, but you may take my word for it that they are there. At that time, probably the population of Israel could not run to much more than a million or so. And a remnant of 7,000 out of a million is a highly encouraging percentage for any prophet. With 7,000 of the boys on his side, there was no great reason for Elijah to feel lonesome. And incidentally, that would be something for the modern prophet of the remnant to think of when he has a touch of the blues. But the main point is that if Elijah the prophet could not make a closer guess on the number of the remnant than he made when he missed it by 7,000, anyone else who tackled the problem would only waste his time. The other certainty which the prophet of the remnant may always have is that the remnant will find him he may rely on that with absolute assurance. They will find him without his doing anything about it. In fact, if he tries to do anything about it, he is pretty sure to put them off. He does not need to advertise for them nor resort to any schemes of publicity to get their attention. If he is a preacher or a public speaker, for example, he may be quite indifferent to going on show at receptions, getting his picture printed in the newspapers, or furnishing autobiographical material for publication on the side of human interest. If a writer, he need not make a point of attending any pink teas, autographing books at wholesale, nor entering into any specious Freemasonry with reviewers. All this and much more of the same order lies in the regular and necessary routine laid down for the profit of the masses." It is and must be part of the great general technique of getting the mass man's ear, or as our vigorous and excellent publicist Mr. H. L. Minken puts it, the technique of boob bumping. The prophet of the remnant is not bound to this technique. He may be quite sure that the remnant will make their own way to him without any adventitious aids, and not only so, but if they find him employing any such aids, as I said, it is ten to one that they will smell a rat in them and will shear off. The certainty that the remnant will find him, however, leaves the prophet as much in the dark as ever, as helpless as ever in the matter of putting any estimate of any kind upon the remnant. For, as appears in the case of Elijah, he remains ignorant of who they are that have found him, or where they are, or how many. They did not write in and tell him about it, after the manner of those who admire the vedettes of Hollywood, nor yet do they seek him out and attach themselves to his person. They are not that kind. They take his message much as drivers take the directions on a roadside signboard. That is, with very little thought about the signboard, beyond being gratefully glad that it happened to be there, but with every thought about the directions." This impersonal attitude of the remnant wonderfully enhances the interest of the imaginative prophet's job. Once in a while, just about often enough to keep his intellectual curiosity in good working order, he will quite accidentally come upon some distinct reflection of his own message in an unsuspected quarter. This enables him to entertain himself in his leisure moments, with agreeable speculations about the course his message may have taken in reaching that particular quarter and about what came of it after it got there. Most interesting of all are those instances, if one could only run them down, but one may always speculate about them, where the recipient himself no longer knows where, nor when, nor from whom he got the message, or even where, as sometimes happens, he has forgotten that he got it anywhere, and imagines that it is all a self-sprung idea of his own. Such instances as these are probably not infrequent, for without presuming to enroll ourselves among the remnant, we can all no doubt remember having found ourselves suddenly under the influence of an idea, the source of which we could not possibly identify. It came to us afterward, as we say. That is, we are aware of it only after it has shot up full-grown in our minds, leaving us quite ignorant of how and when and by what agency it was planted there and left to germinate. It seems highly probable that the prophet's message often takes some such course with the remnant. If, for example, you are a writer or a speaker or a preacher, you put forth an idea which lodges in the unconscious mind of a casual member of the remnant and sticks fast there, For some time it is inert, then it begins to fret and fester until presently it invades the man's conscious mind and, as one might say, corrupts it. Meanwhile, he has quite forgotten how he came by the idea in the first instance and even perhaps thinks he has invented it, and in those circumstances the most interesting thing of all is that you never know what the pressure of that idea will make him do. For these reasons, it appears to me that Isaiah's job is not only good, but also extremely interesting, and especially so at the present time when nobody is doing it. If I were young and had the notion of embarking in the prophetical line, I would certainly take up this branch of the business, and therefore I have no hesitation about recommending it as a career for anyone in that position. It offers an open field with no competition, our civilization so completely neglects and disallows the remnant that anyone going in with an eye single to their service might pretty well count on getting all the trade there is. Even assuming that there is some social salvage to be screened out of the masses, even assuming that the testimony of history to their social value is a little too sweeping, that it depresses hopelessness a little too far, One must yet perceive, I think, that the masses have profits enough and to spare, even admitting that in the teeth of history that hope of the human race may not be quite exclusively centered in the remnant. One must perceive that they have social value enough to entitle them to some measure of prophetic encouragement and consolation, and that our civilization allows them none whatever. Every prophetic voice is addressed to the masses and to them alone. The voice of the pulpit, the voice of education, the voice of politics, of literature, drama, journalism, all these are directed toward the masses exclusively, and they marshal the masses in the way that they are going. One might suggest, therefore, that aspiring prophetical talent may well turn to another field. Set patri priamoce datum. Whatever obligation of the kind may be due the masses is already monstrously overpaid. So long as the masses are taking up the tabernacle of Moloch and Chian, their images, and following the star of their god Bunkum, they will have no lack of prophets to point the way that leadeth to the more abundant life, and hence, a few of those who feel the prophetic afflatus might do better to apply themselves to serving the remnant. It is a good job, an interesting job, much more interesting than serving the masses, and moreover, it is the only job in our whole civilization, as far as I know, that offers a virgin field. Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Knock. All right, before we get into Guy's take on this piece, uh, let's take a quick break and hit our sponsor. You know, you know that I think Bitcoin is important and you probably have some idea of how important I think it is. And because of that, it is literally impossible for me not to try and get as many sats as I possibly can by every legitimate way that I know how. You know, outside of making Guy coin and selling it and having the remnant think I'm a complete buffoon. <laughs> but this is why this is why I switched everything to fold. And I even still live a good portion of my life off of gift cards through the fold app. You know, some of my friends who think this is a hassle, because it's like an extra step, and I'm like, dude, I got three percent back in Bitcoin for this. I get 1% to 2% back on everything I buy just because of the debit card, just because of the Spin plus card. My bill comes in. I get 1.8% back. You know, Folk gives away so many sats. I don't even quite understand how they make money. It's like slightly worrisome because like, I don't know if they're going to be around forever because I'm just like draining them of sats. I have this Spin plus debit card, right? Yesterday, I spent $200 on Amazon gift cards. In my endless search here for a good set of headphones. And I got $11.40 back in Bitcoin. If you haven't done the Fold card thing yet, you got to at least go check it out. The app is free and you can obviously get the gift cards, like I said. And you can get them with Lightning too. You can buy them with Lightning and earn sats back that way. Uh, but when you finally get the premium debit card, don't forget to use my link. guyswan.com fold is a 20% discount for signing up. That's a big discount, so don't miss that one. guyswan.com slash fold. With that, let's get back into the show. It's so funny that this was posted in, uh, what was it, 1926? Excuse me, 1936. 1936. Because it could just as easily describe where we are today. And I think that's a little bit the point, right? Is that the masses always produce a world on the edge of chaos, and even when we have these great periods of prosperity, it's, it's just waiting for everything to unravel because of what the masses do to the prosperity. They take it for granted, they assume that it's theirs by right, by entitlement, and then they bleed it dry of everything it's worth until the thing collapses, and the remnant has to rebuild. And I love this in the context of a job, in the context of why speak the truth? Why speak the absolute, candid, this is what I think about it truth? And Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this. Like Jordan Peterson is one of those people that you feel like this is somebody who's to the to the remnant and actually has a degree of notoriety. And you know, the internet in general is actually kind of an interesting dynamic in all of this because it lets the smallest of communities find each other. So while the remnant is maybe less likely to engage, is more likely to simply take in the idea and go build something in the real world, the fact that there is so much communication, that there is so much interaction in this digital space that can connect the tiniest and smallest of communities out there is really kind of a powerful force for this You know, I've always said the those in power those with authority, those who run the previous systems that control control the world, that control the levers of you know the, the machine of politics or the levers of you know religious power whatever it is those at the top and with the most wealth always have had the ability to organize when a fundamental shift in the way we communicate opens up that organization, that, that communication to literally everyone, it doesn't change their situation that much. Maybe it's a little bit faster, it's a little bit more efficient, they've got a better app for what power they already had. But for those on the fringe, those that aren't wrapped up in the political structures that be, and those without all the capital at their disposal, they never have really had the ability to organize, the ability to find each other. the internet kind of changes that. I mean, think about the most niche topic that you could possibly think of. Some hobby that just, like crocheting cat paws or something. Is that, go back 50 years and there's no way for someone to find another person who crochets cat paws, right? But you could just go on the, you could probably just search that. And there's probably, let's let's, let's search it. Crochet, how do you spell it? C-H-E-T. Cat Paw. Just <laughs> tons of pictures of crochet cat paws. Oh, is uh underneath chair legs. That's cute. But there's just knit hacker. The crochet cat paw chair. Th- I mean, just uh, you you can find a whole you could probably find thousands of other people who for some bizarre reason are fascinated in this one topic it would never actually never even have a community around it going back 30 years 40 years without the internet how would those people find each other how would that old lady who crochets cat paws in new york find the one that does it in northern california and you know with the ocean the veritable ocean of information and messages and and you know profits and everybody who's trying to get some message out to everybody why why would you spend time on anything other than what you thought to be true? Going back to Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson talks about that is that the, the personal power, the confidence that you get in yourself by saying what you think is the truth completely regardless of the consequences. And that's not easy to do. That is not easy to do. But there is incredible power in being able to do that. I mean, you know, for whatever it was worth, I constantly talked about Bitcoin back in, you know, 2011, 2012, and I would tell everybody about it. And it was, I got to admit, I talked about this in um, the the clubhouse that we did the other day, uh, the Bitcoin Builders Clubhouse. So I talked about how hard it was to feel like I was the only one. And with honestly, without my brother, without the fact that we found it at the exact same time and we were both passionate about it. So, it wasn't quite as hard to deal with the, the total lack of social reinforcement. It's really, really hard to stand up in a crowd of people and tell them something that makes them all think you're an idiot or look at you like you're a dumbass because their worldview doesn't even allow what you were talking about, even though their worldview is ridiculous. And you're certain, you know, like the the harder you dig into this, this feels like it's true. This feels like the thing that's going to work. But it's so hard to be seen as that. We so desperately want the justification, that, that reinforcement from our social group. And when we're going against that social group, even though we think what we are saying is true... I, people just don't want to do it. People just like, oh, I don't want, I, I know this is right, but I don't, I just don't want to speak up. They might attack me, you know, they might, they might come after me. They might call me stupid. They might rub my face in it, but it's amazing how much easier it is when there's one person that, you know, agrees with you. There's, there's one person in that group who's like, yep, everybody else here is dumb as shit. You know, imagine, imagine how Ron Paul felt all those years. That guy is the most consistent son of a bitch and and persistent, just unbelievably persistent. You can go back 30 years and that guy was saying the exact same message he was saying today. Why? Because he knew it was true. And every single time the mainstream, you know, wish-wash to this some stupid thing, just say no to drugs. Listen to some of his old stuff about the drug war. And now all the mainstream's even coming back. Everybody's like, yeah, this was stupid. This was a huge waste of time. And over a period of 15 years, the, the political apparatus has painfully and slowly and in the dumbest way possible finally begun to decriminalize at least marijuana. But it doesn't come without excruciating costs and pain and just, just some of the dumbest rules and enforcement that you could possibly come up with. It is inevitable. It's how it seems to work at all times throughout all of history. But then there's moments when that message can get out and it rings true with just the right people at just the right time. You know, what if Ron Paul had given up after 15 years? What if he's just like, this is going nowhere. Nobody's listening to me. I'm, I'm not making no progress. You know, I might not, like, where would I be had it not been for Ron Paul? I don't know, man. I don't know. A lot of people essentially found the absurdity of the system we are under today and and the incredible degree of lies and just utter corruption of any sense of truth. That so much of our political apparatus and corporate apparatus is actually built off of, because of Ron Paul. I know it was incredibly influential to me personally, and every time I sit down and talk with the Bitcoiners, there's almost this common thread that everybody was like, even when even when they got really big in the Ron Paul movement, and then it died down, and then you know years or decade later or something, they found Bitcoin. There seems to be some sort of a Ron Paul story there. You know what I mean? Like somebody, somebody found that message and it stuck with them until Bitcoin seemed to fulfill that role. And I think, and you know, maybe I'm projecting a little bit here because this is so much a part of my story, but that's it feels like it feels like that's there for so many people in this space. But when we're talking about putting a message out there, is what's the value of a message? if you have to remove all of its most important meaning to get it to register with, quote-unquote, the masses. There's a great uh, great part towards the beginning of this about how they were going to get their message out to the masses and, and how the masses are the sole and just universal audience to which to project your message Uh, and, And this quote, this quote says, This attitude toward the masses is so exclusive, so devout, that one is reminded of the troglodytic monster described by Plato and the assiduous crowd at the entrance to its cave, trying obsequiously to placate it and win its favor, trying to interpret its inarticulate noises, trying to find out what it wants and eagerly offering it all sorts of things that they think might strike its fancy. You know, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Just throwing everything at the winds, trying desperately to get the appeal of the masses, responding and kowtowing and apologizing every time the wind blows a different direction, bending the knee... Whenever it's appeared that the, that the knee needs to be bent for whatever stupid thing you're supposed to care about today above any and all others, your life isn't yours, you're just, you're just a reaction. You become a reaction to whatever the masses are squealing about today because you've hinged everything. You've, you've hooked your life and your success to their approval. And you see this with celebrities everywhere. That's, that's all of what they're doing. They're just, whatever, what what wind is blowing today? I'm going to be standing in front of it. I'm going to be talking about how great it is that this is the way the wind is blowing. And they all play it. And there's some of them, there's some of them that you know hate it. They hate that they can't say what they think. They hate themselves for standing up there and parroting whatever dumb shit they're handed on the piece of paper or on their prompter Cause that's just what they've got to do. Cause the PR person says so, and their agent says they're gonna be, they're going their whole career is gonna be ruined if they don't say it exactly this way and and get down on their knee and salute and blah blah blah. Is it the truth? Nah, they know it's not true. But who gives a shit? We gotta do it for the masses. And sometimes you just gotta have utter mountains of respect for the people who know. Who, who are in even in that sort of a position who know the damage that would be done by speaking the truth or what they actually think and do it anyway. Just balls of the wall. Screw it. I just don't care anymore. I'm going to Ricky Jarvis this. <laughs> like his thing at the Golden Globes could not be a better example of just like, look at this show. Look at the joke of this thing that we have made out of ourselves. And we pretend like everybody didn't know that that this huge movie mogul wasn't fondling kids, but we just needed a job really, really bad and can't rock the boat, can't say what we know is true. So instead we're gonna get up here on the podium and talk about what a great guy he is and how much we love him and we appreciate that he puts us into these big movies. I don't have the very highest opinion of Hollywood, if that's not if that's not obvious. <laughs> but, you know, part of me feels sorry for people like that, too. To feel like you're trapped in your own, like, to just constantly cage yourself. To be so incessantly and deeply worried about how the lowest common denominator of everybody around you is going to take what you say that nothing that you say is real. <laughs> nothing that you say is honest. I don't know, that sounds like a awful, awful place to be. There's, a, there's a, actually one of the quotes i saved is relevant to this. So, quote, But as we see on all sides, in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities. In every instance, that its effect on the masses is merely to harden them in their sins. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this adulteration and of the desires that prompt it, turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message. I love that line of when you take something true and meaningful and desperately try to make it fit, into the head of the masses of just the average whoever, that, quote-unquote, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities that its effect is merely to harden them in their sins. That you have to make it appeal to them such that all it can do is reinforce what they already think. And if you don't do that, it doesn't appeal to them. That's basically it. And all the while you make the remnant think you're just a buffoon. And, you know, there's a lot of this in, you know, I've read a lot of books and watched videos and stuff about being an influencer and all this shit. And you get constantly, you know, talk about like, oh, you got to do the right ad copy and all this stuff. And to some degree there's there's this constant battle to get people's attention, you know. But so much of it is empty sales it, it is truly dumbing down the message to to make someone else pick it up and look at that happening everywhere i mean we just have the dumbing down of society i feel like that's what the last 20 years of my life has just been in observation of is getting as many people into college by making college useless by doing everything they can to dumb it down to get the average random person who has no idea what the hell they want to do with their life, but get them into college and make sure they get all the debt they need so that they can funnel money into the college education system. To get as many people as possible to watch my movie by making sure there's an action scene at 7 minutes, at 28 minutes, at 42 minutes, and there's never there's never too much time in which you're actually un- Folding an interesting story or having too much dialogue because something's got to blow up. And you know, who knows if the masses are going to care about your thing today. That maybe they reject it and then in the end, what did you you get? Did you even get your message out there? Did you tell the story you wanted to tell or did you tell them the one they wanted to hear and just gut the meaning out of yours? Another quote I saved was uh, the prophet of the American masses must aim consciously at the lowest common denominator of intellect, taste, and character among 120 million people. And this is a distressing task. That feels like the entire purpose and apparatus of politics. To aim consciously At the lowest common denominator of intellect, taste, and character. But what about the remnant? What about the people who are actually going to make a difference? What about the people who aren't going to listen to that crap that they will look at it and see what a joke, what a clown world this actually is? They know you're being dishonest. They know you've just filled your message with a bunch of bullshit just to get it so that, just to appeal to the people who don't deserve to be appealed to that you sacrificed the truth for approval and at the end of this he's got a he's got a you know a a paragraph of admissions it's like okay we we may have talked too badly about the masses we may have been too blanket in our statement about them of having no value no historical importance we may have blown up or overinflated the fact that The remnant alone rebuilds the world when the masses take it into into chaos and disorder. Maybe the remnant has been exaggerated and the masses have been underappreciated. But, quote, even admitting that in the teeth of history that hope of the human race may not be quite exclusively centered in the remnant, one must perceive That they have social value enough to entitle them to some measure of prophetic encouragement and consolation and that our civilization allows them none whatever. So when you have that truth, that thing that you want to say and you're afraid to say it or you know it'll be disapproved of even though you're damn sure that it is the truth and you feel alone and like nobody else has your back and that how could everybody believe the thing that they believe, which is so utterly ridiculous. And how could you be the only one that that sees it for what it really is? When you do speak up, think about the fact that somebody else who hears it, somebody in that room, in that crowd, one of the 10 people who watched that video may have understood what you were trying to say and now doesn't feel quite so alone anymore. Like they're the only one in their whole group of friends in their neighborhood who actually seems to be standing up for what's right. They feel that same hopelessness. They feel that same inability to stand up and say anything. So the person who does is finally giving them some measure of relief is entitling them to some amount of value and consolation in the fact that they feel entirely alone on what they know or feel to be right. And what if they're the only ones that matter anyway? Everybody who's just reactionary, everybody who just leans with the political wind no matter what stupid way it's blowing, they don't matter. They don't shape the world. The world shapes them. Don't abuse your message for their approval. Speak honestly and know that the remnant is going to hear you. Maybe you'll just find some of those jackasses on Twitter. <laughs> Alright. I guess that's it. This is a really good piece. I love this, this idea. I love the opportunity to bitch about people I don't like or I think are dumb and to feel superior. Those are great, great times always. (laughs) Oh, man. Gotta admit, too, I don't know much about Albert J. Nock. I I know the man and, you know, I've heard, I feel like I've absolutely written, uh, excuse me, written, uh, read some of his stuff in the past, but... I'm going to have to dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to have to add some Albert J. Nock to my list of stuff. Um, really interesting. Really just great. Great piece here. Um, and I love the idea. Just love the idea. And I feel like if, if there is anything to aspire to, it is Isaiah's job. And how much more does it matter? And how much more impact does doing that have when the political winds are blowing as hard as they ever blow and hardly anybody else is doing it. You know, I feel like it's kind of axiomatic that it's inherently true that it matters that much more to do it when it's the hardest it is to do. When it's harder than ever to stand up and speak the truth is when it's most valuable for someone to do it. And I feel like this, this is one of those times. Be okay with being called a fool. Be okay with someone looking down on you. Be okay with not getting the social recognition you hope to get when you say what you know to be true because someone from the remnant might be there to hear you. That'll do it. All right, guys. Um, thank you so much for listening. I'm Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible. Don't forget to check out our amazing sponsors that keep this thing running at guyswan.com. We got the Bitbox hardware wallet, the Fold Card, and Swan Bitcoin. These are my sponsors because they are services that I love, not the other way around. Well, I mean, they love me too. Or at least they say they like the show. Check them out at guyswan.com for some discounts and goodies exclusive to Bitcoin Audible listeners when you click those links over there. You know, Bitcoin is the remnant. It is the substratum built to replace the collapsing structures around us. It gives the remnant that foundation to start from. We have a hell of a mission ahead of us just to keep that alive. And the most important thing that we can do is not dumb down our message for the masses but speak the truth as clearly as we know how and never stop thank you all so much for listening i am guy swan and until next time everybody take it easy This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.